So just before we start looking at this passage from Ephesians, uh, a couple thank yous and then a bit of an introduction. Uh, first of all, thank you for faithfully holding on to my credentials for almost eight years now. I, I really appreciate that. So, And then also thank you for your support for Resonate Global Mission. And I always remind congregations when I preach that two, about two years ago, Christian Formed World Missions and Christian Formed Home Missions came together, and now we are called Resonate Global Mission. So thank you for your support there as well. So then just a little bit of a background. Uh, uh, three of our kids have been married now in just in the past two years. So it's been a very busy two years for the Sinclair family, but we've also been very blessed. Uh, this particular passage um, message came out of my daughter Emily's wedding ceremony, and uh, it was really uh, because she wanted to focus on unity as a couple. So you, you'll hear, if you're a married couple, you'll hear tones this morning about that in terms of unity in marriage. But as I was uh, writing, and I was really struggling because this is really a message for the church, and it's a message of unity for the church today. So I thought, this really needs to be adapted for the church. Then at the same time, I was also discovering something called virtue ethics. Oftentimes when we think about ethics, we think about quandary ethics. That is uh, making the right moral decision at a point in time. But virtue ethics is much more about forming character and habits that lead to good moral decisions. And we'll see here that Paul is actually using virtue ethics as he talks about church unity. Then the other thing was just the general kind of impression in the back of my mind, and I'm sure this is shared by all of us, that we live in very polarized times, don't we? Uh, increasingly, and some people blame social media, you know, the algorithms, the echo chambers that we live in today. Uh, there's probably many reasons it's complex, but we know that polarization is increasing. Just as an example, in the U.S., a study um, said that 20 years ago, Republicans and Democrats generally were spread across states and I think electoral districts. But today, when we look at maps, you know how they have the red and the blue, we'll see that actually they're kind of lumped together. We have a lot of Republicans living in one part of a state and a lot of Democrats living in another. It's like they've wanted to come together physically. And I'm sure we'll see that more and more in Canada as well, especially as we're into a new election just recently election cycle started, and we're going to see some of that polarization pressure as well in Canadian politics. So all the more important that we, as the church today, are unified together. And that's why this is a good message from Paul, both for the churches in his time, but also for the church today and for our churches. So let's take a look at it. It divides nicely up into three sections. So that, that's very helpful. So the first section you'll see is really verse 1. So Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So Paul's going to give some guidance to the church on being unified. He's going to give some imperatives, but Paul grounds those imperatives in the foundation of the gospel. That's always important for our churches. It's sometimes easy for us to fall into the do this and the do that and forget why. Right? Forget that very basic foundation that we have. And sometimes the danger in our churches is that we tend to jump to verse 2, but we forget to articulate verse 1. Because it's very important that we are reminded again that it is through Jesus Christ that we are saved. And that Paul clearly says here that not only that, but it is because God has called us to him. 
that we were so lost in our sin, so depraved, to use the language of the Reformation, that we could not even turn ourselves toward a righteous God. Therefore, God had to turn us towards him. That he had to basically pull our hearts towards him so we could focus on him and come to him and be saved by him. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about the calling that you have received in Jesus Christ and your salvation. And then notice, out of that calling, he says, live a life worthy of that calling. Be together in the church and be unified out of gratitude for that salvation. So that's the very foundation that, uh, that, that Paul starts with. And he's really talking about just how much God loves us, right? That God has lavished this incredible love on us. And out of that love comes our response as his people in the church today. And how great that love is. Uh, you might remember some years ago there was a book, The Five Love Languages. I don't know how many people remember that one. Anyways, one of the love languages was uh, gifts and giving. And I think my mother, she passed away in 2009, she had this gift. She loved to especially give gifts. Um, she would just lavish people with gifts. In fact, one, one Christmas we were living in Mali, West Africa, where we were serving, and uh, our son Josiah was about three years old, maybe, and um, somehow she managed to get a whole bunch of gifts out to West Africa. She, I think she cornered one of our missionary colleagues and managed to get, we used to send these 70-pound boxes, and we'd take them with us, and she managed to get one of these, one of our colleagues to bring this big box and uh, I can ne- I'll never forget that Christmas morning because poor Josiah, you know, he, 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 there was this gift there and he opened it and all he wanted to do was play with this gift, right? He, he would have been happy just playing with the wrapping paper. But no, it was like, okay, Josiah, put that aside. You know, there's an- another gift to open up. So he opened up that one. And then it was like, there's another gift to open up. The poor kid was just exhausted on that Christmas morning. I felt so bad for him. But, uh, but I illustrate this because how great it is, how much greater it is, that gift of God out of his love for us that he gave his son, Jesus Christ, for us. That's the foundation that brings us together. So that's the first part. And then we move on to that virtue ethics part that I talked of, because we know that the, the three biblical virtues are faith, hope, and love, right? First Corinthians 13. But there's also many uh, virtues associated with that, uh, those virtues, and actually Paul highlights four of them in this passage in verse 2. So let's take a look at those, because they're really kind of Paul's guidance for the church in terms of how do we be unified together? How do we stay together? How do we work together as the body of Christ? And so really we're talking about living ethically, and as I said earlier, the great thing about the virtue ethics is that it's not really dependent upon this one point in time where we have to make this really important moral decision and make it in the right way. Because really, that, that, that's a difficult thing to do. Much better to build character and to form faith. And that's what the church is all about, right? That we're forming faith in our children, in each other, through discipleship forming good habits and character, so that when the moment comes and we have to make a moral decision, we're ready. Some authors 
say it's a little bit like uh, taking somebody who's hardly ever played baseball and throwing them in the World Series. Not a good idea, right? And that's the same thing with virtue ethics. It's building those kind of ethical characters and habits uh, over time. You know, we think of vices. Vices are basically sins that become habits. Virtues are good acts that become habits. And so here are four that Paul highlights. The first one is humility. So humility is very important in the church to be one together, to work together, because it's all about renouncing the self. It's all about renouncing self-centeredness and your own agenda. Uh, it's putting away that me-first attitude. I mean, isn't that what society tells us, right? Society, have for, for a couple decades now, has been telling us, put yourself first. But humility is not. Humility is elevating the needs of the other. It's elevating the person beside you. It's elevating the person that's with you on a committee or on a leadership team. C.J. Mahani wrote a, just a small book on humility, and in that book he says, humility is our greatest friend, and pride, which is probably the root of the vices, right? The, the root of them all is our greatest enemy in terms of unity. And even in the secular world, again, I'm going back, I'm not quite sure why, I seem to be going back a little bit into the past here, but there was a book, Good to Great. That was also very popular back in its day. Uh, it was by Jim Collins. And Jim Collins identified businesses and organizations that had been just good, you know, very good at what they did, but they made this leap to becoming a great company or a great organization, highly successful. And he found, as he uh, interviewed CEOs of these companies, that one of the most important character traits was humility. Humility. So, you know, humility is an important trait for anything, but especially in the church. Right? If anybody should be focusing on humility, it's the church. And, uh, in fact, we know that in Mark chapter 9, the disciples were arguing, who will be the greatest? in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus tells him that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So Paul challenges the churches, the members of the churches, the people of the churches to practice humility. And Mahaney in his book says, if church leaders practiced humility, there would be far less church splits and divisions. So that's an important message, I think. Let's go on to gentleness. What is gentleness? Well, we can also talk about kindness. In fact, there's a parallel passage, Colossians 3, 12 to 17, that reads, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So oftentimes, gentleness and kindness are both used for this virtue. And it's so important as a healthy church, and this is one that really impacts, I think, couples as well. To be unified is to really have each other's backs. That's what unity in this sense means. It means always speaking positively about the other. Always supporting and encouraging the other. And the other side of this is putting away all harshness and violence. We really have to put that away. We have to just say, okay, that's just not going to be part of our fellowship. And actually, we have some backing from the Heidelberg Catechism here, because you'll know that when we study the Ten Commandments, and the Heidelberg Catechism talks about this, when we study the commandment, do not murder, we know that, that um, 
there's a point uh, that the commandment makes, but there's a whole scope of the commandment around it. And one of the ways we think about that is it's not just physically murdering somebody, it's also not murdering them in your mind, right? That's part of that scope, that we don't murder somebody in our minds with our thoughts. So we're not harsh in our thoughts and the way we feel about people. That's what gentleness and kindness is. It's good for marriage. It's good for the church. It's good for our fellowships together. To always watch out for each other and to never harm each other. To always look out for the best for our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Because we are a family together, right? God has made us his family. And so gentleness and kindness is very important for unity in the church. Sometimes we also talk about compassion. But compassion is a little bit more about kindness in the face of suffering. So there's a little bit of a difference with the word compassion. Kindness and gentleness are about treating others, creatures of God, and not only human creatures, but all of creation, really, I think, kindly, gently, carefully, and allowing that to become a habit. Stanley Hauerwas, the theologian, wrote a book called The Character of Virtue. And in that book, it's very interesting, he's writing letters to his godson on his godson's birthday either baptism date or birthday, I think birthday. And as the book goes on, he gets older and older, and he's writing about these different virtues. And in the book, he says the opposite of this virtue of kindness, gentleness, is cruelty. And oftentimes, we learn cruelty as children, don't we? In unsupervised playtimes, our, our sinful natures come out. Children aren't as innocent as we might expect, and sometimes cruelty happens. And so we always have to remember that through developing this habit of gentleness and kindness, we're overcoming that sinful desire for cruelty. Ethicists like Horowitz also talk about the fact that for every virtue, there's a vice. But not only that, there's often a vice on either side. So we have the virtue, gentleness and kindness. We have the vice, which is cruelty. But on the other side, there's another vice, and that is sentimentality. Well, that's interesting. Sentimentality is really being gentle, kind, gentle and kind on the outside, but not on the inside. That's the problem with sentimentality. Inside, we're not so kind and so gentle. So we have to be aware of vices on both sides. And Hauerwas is very encouraging uh, when he says, we believe that God gives each of us all we need to find our way to kindness. God has given us this as a gift. And we have to remember that that's an important part of the virtue ethics. The Greeks emphasized the ability of the self to find the virtues, but we emphasize God giving us these gifts as gifts of grace. All right, let's move on to patience. So Paul mentions patience in both these passages, Ephesians and Colossians. And you'll notice in the Colossians passage, patience comes last. So some see patience as the anchor of these virtues. And again, patience is somewhat similar um, to, uh, to the, the place we started in terms of humility, and that it's also about putting away the tyranny of our own agenda. A lot of the virtues focus on, well, taking the focus off the self and putting it on God, right? Virtues are all about finding the right order that God intends. And that's also the case with patience. But of course, that continues to be a challenge, doesn't it? Especially as society continues to tell us to put your agenda first. 
to watch out for yourself. And that's why I think some of the uh, older translations, and I just heard somebody read it in a different translation last weekend, and it was called long-suffering. I think that's right, isn't it? Sometimes to be together in the church is long-suffering. We'll just name that reality. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's difficult. But as Eugene Peterson said, we are walking in a long obedience in the same direction with patience. So what does patience look like practically? It's giving each other space to fail sometimes. It's giving our leaders space to try things, to sometimes fail. It's praying for our leaders. It's lifting them up to the Lord for the difficult tasks they have in leading. It's being patient with each other. Sometimes our lives become complex, right? Sometimes we need understanding and validation. That's part of patience. Hauerwas writes about the virtue of patience, and he says that even though you know, he's a, a, a big-time theologian, he learned patience from his father, who was a bricklayer, who every day went to work patiently, carefully doing his job to the best of his ability. Quality work. That's where he learned patience. And he says that God gives us this gift of patience. He shows us patience. I mean, while we were still sinners, it says in Romans, God loved us, right? God is patient with us. And Hauerwas, who isn't a young man, uh, you know, throughout the book, he's writing letters every year. So I think by the end of the book, he's around 74 years old. He says that God teaches him patience through aging. That as we age, God teaches us patience. And I was reflecting on that because some time ago, I spoke to a seniors group in Kitchener, Kitchener Community Church, 55 plus. I was talking to them a little bit about the work I do for Resonate. And as I was looking out at the crowd, I realized, wait a minute, I could fit into this group. It was a bit of a realization for me. Uh, so maybe God will teach me patience as well. Then there's the last one, bearing with each other in love. Notice that Paul ties in here the biblical virtue of love. It's interesting, bearing with one another. We don't use that term very much, even in this NIV. I think that's becoming a little antiquated. How are you bearing up today? We might, maybe we would say that if we were having difficult times. But we don't use that word. Maybe we should say putting up with each other, perhaps. How are you doing that way? Put up with each other in love. Put up with each other even when you're annoyed, you're frustrated, you wish there was more progress, you, you want things to be done differently, you think it should be done this way. Again, we are reminded that when we have these kinds of thoughts, we have to come back to the fact that God loved us first. That's the basis for all of this, isn't it? I think all of these are really founded in this biblical virtue of love that as we love each other, we're manifesting God in our community. And uh, the missionary part of me can't help but say that, people of God, when you manifest that love, not only is your fellowship healthier and more beautiful, but it has an impact on your community. People see that. As we live in an increasingly secular community, less and less people have Connections to the church, you know, we call them nuns, right? In these different surveys that we read, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, right? 
the people who have no faith, maybe they did it one time, or maybe they never even read the Bible, it's possible. And they're curious. They wonder, why do people come in here on a Sunday morning? They're going to get their Starbucks, and they just notice people filing into a building like this, and they're curious. They're wondering what's happening in there. And uh, people of God, as we love each other, that is going to have an impact on the community. I can't tell you exactly how, but I just know it will. It will have an impact. So that's a reason to, to love each other. And just as an example from my past, when I think back to when I became a Christian in around uh, grade eight, it was because I went to a, a summer camp. It was a Christian camp. My parents were what I would call them nominal Christians, but we went to a, um, a winter camp as part of my public school. And that, that winter camp was so wonderful, I said to my mom, I want to go there in the summer. Anyways, this was a, a summer camp in Manitoba called Camp Arness. It was run by Mennonite Brethren, mainly Mennonite Brethren churches. And I can tell you, when I got there, after a couple summers, I heard the gospel. And I believe, as Paul says at the beginning of this, of this passage, of course, it was God calling me to him through the Holy Spirit but I have to say it was also the people in that camp loving each other, because I remember that well, how much they, the camp staff, loved each other, an impression on me. So it's really both interacting together, isn't it? It's God, God's call on people, but it's also God's people loving each other. Now, two clarifications. In talking about unity, there could be some misunderstanding, so I just want to mention these two. First of all, unity doesn't mean sameness. We could come to that conclusion, right? We need to all think the same. We need to all be the same. But we don't have to be. We can be very diverse. In fact, we should be. Because I think Christ's church is a diverse church in many different ways. But within that diversity, we do have unity. And that unity is that we identify as belonging to Christ. Right? Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 1. I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our unity. But within that, we can have a lot of diversity. And then the other, the second kind of clarification is that, you know, this might also be a frustration sometimes, unity. So we have to remember that unity is something that as a church we are heading towards. We might not have it perfectly today. But the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding, and we have something called a telos, which is the Greek word for like goal or endpoint, a place we're heading towards, and that is when Jesus comes again. And when Jesus comes again, we will have perfect unity as God's people around the throne of God. But until that... You know, we'll make some progress on unity. We'll go back a little bit. We'll try again by God's grace. We'll keep on going towards that point as God's church. So we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves if we're frustrated and we don't feel like we have enough unity. We also have to remember that unity is a gift of God. That Christianity is meant to be communal. And that God has brought us together and in Jesus has made us his friend, right? John 15.7, we have become friends with Christ. So we are together on this journey, and we have hope. And that brings us to the third part. Here's our hope. 
like the Greeks who thought, or unlike the Greeks, I should say, who thought that this kind of this whole idea of virtue ethics was something they could do on their own, right? And there's many other virtues that Greeks identified, like temperance and courage and others. But here's the, here's the message that's so special, is that this is a gift. And we see that in the third part, starting at verse 3. Paul says, make every effort. Okay, so Paul is saying this is an important issue. People of God, make every effort to be unified together as God's people. To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So here, Paul is crouching that unity in the Spirit and the Spirit's work through the bond of peace. And then look what happens in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called. So Paul reminds us again of that calling that's foundational for this passage. To one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So you'll notice there, preponderance of one, telling us that unity is a gift from God because unity is God. God is one. God is unified. And God pours out that unity on his people through the Spirit. So Paul goes to a lot of effort to stress that this unity that we strive for is a gift of God and that God is giving it to his church. Because God is one God. God is one Father. And he has given one spirit. And that spirit is a secret weapon against disunity. And that's why we need to come together in prayer, praying that the Holy Spirit will move in our midst and bring us together as one people. And in the busyness of our lives and our programs, that we won't get distracted from the main idea here that we are together and that we are unified together and that we are growing together. As we grow in our love for Jesus Christ, right? John 15, 5, as we abide in Christ, we grow together in love for God and in love for each other. And that's where this is leading. And I want to just return back to uh, the passage we heard earlier as our words of assurance from Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34, because really this is a promise that God has given to his people throughout the covenant. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So God is prompting through the prophet Jeremiah to do this very thing that he has now done, that he would give unity to us because he has written the law on our hearts and on our minds. He has made us one through that. And then more so even through the Holy Spirit. God has accomplished this through the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's presence. And so, so often in society, you know, going back to Greek and Roman times, we are called to look to human potential, to look what we can do, and yet obviously that's not the case, right? God's covenant faithfulness has given us the gift of unity today, to be one people. And as God pours out his gifts on his people, 
What do we know about those gifts from Galatians 5, right? The gifts of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You hear those same, some of those same virtues that Paul has been talk, talking about poured out through the Holy Spirit on God's people, on us. So people of God, be unified together. But remember, it is a gift to you through your salvation in Jesus Christ. And as you form these habits, these virtues, as the Holy Spirit helps you grow into these virtues and habits, God is with you and God is leading you. And that's an encouraging message, I think. And be reminded again that we are God's people in our communities and that the unity that we have will also be a great witness to our communities around us. So let us pray. Let us pray that on this journey we will be unified. Father God, thank you for the unity that we have, that we strive for. Thank you, Lord, that in the midst of our frailty and sinfulness, you called us to you and that you gave us this amazing gift. Help us to live into that gift. Help us to be patient and humble and gentle, to bear with one another in love. And may your love pour out of us and out into our communities as well. Thank you, Lord, for this great gift of your grace. And thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.